What does it take to uncover sustainable investments? It takes robust proprietary research, disciplined investment principles, and a commitment to responsibility. In short, it takes fidelity. Because when it comes to your portfolio and the world, no detail is too small. Fidelity. We bring clarity to sustainability. Visit fidelity.com slash sustainable to learn more. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. How about we heat things up tonight? Mm, how so? Get a little fresh. Add some steam, sizzle, and spice. <laughs> Wait, you're talking about going to Outback again, aren't you? Fire things up at Outback Steakhouse. For a limited time, try our Bloomin' Fried Shrimp. Or get fresh with our new strawberry salad. Go big with our bone-in ribeye. Or the filet and grilled shrimp on the barbie. Then cool off with a cucumber crush or peanut koala. Try them all before they're gone. Let's Outback. Have you ever had an event or an experience that changed how you see the world? Often it's the things that we don't expect that end up causing us to evaluate how we see our lives, how we interact with others, how we experience things moving forward. My guest today on Dr. D's social network is Marsha Moran. And Marsha experienced a very traumatic event. She experienced a stroke. And that stroke was extremely unexpected and certainly provided a different outlook on life. We also talk about our experiences in Nordic countries, the differences between people, and the importance of acknowledging others. Ladies and gentlemen, Marsha Moran. You're in the network. We made it. Yay. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? Good. I enjoyed our conversation we had the other day. And uh, you know I'm going to ask you about, was it Norway? Was it Norway? Yeah. I went that's to com- Norway. <laughs> it's coming. It's not right now, but that's coming up. It's definitely okay. coming up. But I do, uh, Greg Rodesheimer connected us. Mm-hmm. And I believe you were on his podcast talking about, was it about the stroke that you had? Yes. So tell me about life before that, leading up to that time, what you were doing, what you're into, the whole deal. Okay. So I had my own business, and I actually wrote business plans for businesses, um, helped them reorganize how they were positioned in the marketplace, that sort of thing. It was a regular life, you know. I went to work every day. I, I, I guess I felt like nothing would get me down, <laughs> and I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, how did it come about? Like, what was the kind of the moments leading up to it? Well, I don't know because I was asleep. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, wait. So, waking up, what happened? So when I woke up, I felt odd. And I was due to have breakfast with a friend. So I reached for my phone and I was going to text her. And I couldn't read the text. I thought, well, this is weird. I'll just text her later. And I put the phone down, rolled over, and I had the most incredible headache happen. It was just unbelievable. And despite this pain, I fell asleep. The next time I woke up, I knew that I was in serious trouble because I had no movement on my right-hand side. It was completely paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So I fell out of bed, and I dragged myself across the carpet with my left hand. And when I got to the bedroom door, it was closed, so I had to reach up for it. And It was a little too high for me to reach. I don't know how many times I reached for it, but I finally stuck it open. And I was tired, what was sweat. So I took a breather, and I don't know how long it was, but I finally felt I had enough gumption to go down the hallway. And I was 
partway down the hallway and I totally ran out of gas. I just couldn't move. <laughs> so, yeah. I figured my husband would come up. So it was Sunday, right? So my husband would come up sometime for a soda. And all of a sudden, crash. I don't know what fell. But he came upstairs and he said, Marsha, are you all right? And that's the time I remembered that I couldn't talk. I mean, I said nothing. And he said, can you talk to me? And I couldn't talk. So he said, I'm calling 911. And he walked around upstairs while we were waiting for the paramedics to arrive. He didn't find anything. And he sat down and waited with me. And the paramedics arrived. And the first thing one of them said was, when did she have a stroke? Hmm. Yeah. Your husband seemed pretty, was he calm the way you're kind of describing it during the time? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I, I was pretty much out of it by then. So I actually lost consciousness right after they put me in the ambulance. Um, so I think he was calm to the extent where, you know, he looked around the house and then he came and kept me company, but I don't think he was calm at all. So the paramedics told him he needed to obey the speed limit <laughs> ah. and not drive through any stop signs or anything on his way to the hospital. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And how long were you in the hospital? Four days. Oh, wow. And then I was in the rehab hospital two weeks. I mean, what was your mindset during that time? And like, what was going on internally with you? Well, the first time I woke up in the ER, I had a hospital robe on. I had a needle in my arm, and I saw my husband was there. And as soon as I saw my husband, I felt like everything was okay. And so I went back to sleep. And I think for me, it was always okay because he was around me most of the time. So he went home when uh, visiting hours were over, and he came back the first thing he could be there in the morning. So he was there pretty much almost all the time. Um, and then, so I don't know if they told me I could choke. Maybe they did, but I didn't know it. So my, my memory is short at, at the time frame. I know that when people were talking, I understood them. When they left the room, I probably forgot within the next five minutes. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if they told me I would have a choking problem, but so they gave me thick liquids to drink. And when I drank them, I was supposed to look forward. I was supposed to turn my left, my head to the left hand side and swallow. And then I'm supposed to turn my head forward again. Well, they brought me chicken for lunch one day. <laughs> right. And I was going, woohoo, chicken. And I started eating and, of course, choked. And I don't know how they got it out of my mouth. I don't remember that part. But I do remember that the nurses chastised me for eating. And I'm thinking, I don't have much memory here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You couldn't. I don't think I'm, yeah, I don't think you should chastise me. You should be paying more attention. Right. Yeah. Wow. So you're having trouble with that. What else was going on that was really difficult for you? So I came up from the ER and the nurse decided to take me into the bathroom and she got me situated, and then she left the room to make my bed. And I would say the worst thing to do for a new stroke patient is to leave them alone in the bathroom because, of course, I had no muscle mm -hmm. on my right-hand side. So I 
fell over. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. So she and my husband came into the bathroom and that's when my husband realized that he had to become my own advocate. So I think that was a w- an awakening for him. The next thing was the chicken incident where he was going, I really have to watch what they're doing. Yeah. And actually, um, the chicken incident is the first time he really became scared for me because he thought she could die. And he went home and called my husband, uh, my um, sister that night, and he asked if she would come to visit us. And so I had my stroke March 30th, so it was early April, and she did come. She's a CPA, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so she put her um, clients on notice that she wouldn't have their tax returns done, and she put them on extension, and then she came with her husband. And I think that was really helpful for my husband because he had someone there that he could talk to. Yeah. Yeah. I would would imagine so. So how many years ago was this? Six. Six years ago. So was there a process of learning how to do quite a few things again over a long period of time? I'd love to hear about that. Uh, Yeah. So I didn't walk. Um, I didn't talk much. I didn't swallow for a while. So the swallowing actually came back probably in the first few days. Mm-hmm. So that was, I think by the time I got to the rehab hospital, they gave me food, but it was like mush. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I remember... The first time I walked was in the hospital. They gave me a nurse, and she said, we're going to walk around the nurse's station. Well, actually, she was probably a physical therapist. And she put a two-inch belt around, and without her holding me up, I probably would have been on the ground. Um, But by the time I got to the rehab hospital, um, they took me into a large room that um, we walked around. And although I needed help, they actually said I could do it. And I did. Um, but again, I think I would probably be on the floor if it weren't for the physical therapist kind of holding me up. Right. By the time I left the rehab hospital, I was walking with a cane. So. Okay. So some progress, obviously, there. Yeah, Yeah, obviously. Um, I actually hired my own physical therapist. So insurance took me out through mid-August, and I still wasn't walking really well. So I hired my own physical therapist, and she worked with me for a year before I was actually walking to where nobody seeing me would realize I had a stroke. Now I could tell that I had a stroke because my right side is still weaker than the left. Mm -hmm. I still have cramps in my right foot and stuff, but on the sidewalk, people don't know I had a stroke. Um, My speech was also an issue. So I had aphasia, which is a speech disorder. And the American Aphasia Association says that if you're not cured within the first three months, you will probably have aphasia for life. And (laughs) I was not cured by the first three months. So I actually had a doctor who started doing neurofeedback um, three and a half years after I had my stroke. And... After he started doing it, he realized that it might do me some good. So he told me about it. He gave me a website to look at. I came home and looked it up online. And it says that 85% of people with traumatic brain injury 
who have this neurofeedback get better? And I thought, well, I'd be stupid not to try it, right? <laughs> Most definitely. And so I went in and he put my hair up and he put some gunk on my skin. And I used to call it cat spit <laughs> because it's wet, mm. sticky, and kind of gritty. But that's what creates a barrier for, for um, to make the leads really adhere. And he put two, uh, two positive, two negative, and a ground on me and started it up. I went, I feel nothing. <laughs> yeah. I looked at the computer, and the monitor was really showing that my brain waves were going, but I felt nothing. I thought, okay. And he put them in a new place, and I felt nothing again. I thought, is this really working? <laughs> well, you know what? That day actually spoke better. And after 16 sessions, I spoke the way I do now. Oh, wow. So it's really a miracle for me. Yeah. Is there anything, like, were you pretty physically active before all this, or was there, like, a huge change in your activity level? Uh, there was a huge change. So I ran three days a week. Um, I worked out at the gym. Um, so going from that to going to <laughs> uh, the point where I'm picking up coins to exercise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a big difference. Yeah. What was that emotionally like for you? Like, I can't even imagine that. That would be tough for me. Yeah, it was really hard, but I didn't think about it as this is where I am. This is where I'm always going to be. I thought about it as this is where I am today. This is not where I'm going to be tomorrow. And I think you have, I, I, I think the people who get better always think that way or a similar way. Um, I was down some days, but I didn't let me, let it get me down for more than a day. It's like you have to right. pick up and move forward. Are you back to your exercising routine now, or is that altered quite a bit? Well, until we had COVID-19, I was pretty good about exercising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, not so much. So where I live, it's been 90 degrees most of the summer. Pretty hot. Yeah. Pretty hot. And so I stay inside, and yeah, I don't exercise very much. So I'm feeling pretty icky about that do you think that going through i don't know if this is connected i'm interested though like going through such a traumatic experience helps you deal with the experience of what we're going through in the world right now i actually do so most people complain about staying home and well for me i've been home for six years so <laughs> Yeah. But I think also it has to do with the way I think about life in general. It's like, okay, so it's foolish to spend more time out of the house than you have to. So I go grocery shopping, I go to the post office. Mm -hmm. and that's about it. Yeah. So explain a little further like what what are the mechanisms that you're using like obviously it's a perspective then like you've been in this very difficult situation so that a difficult situation right now the cost is low for you to be really super like militant about what's happening or mm -hmm. I would love to, like just deeper an idea of like what's going through your mind when when this comes down and and comparing it to what happened to you you know Well, I think, so psychologically, I think that it's a change for everyone mm -hmm. to stay at home most of the time. I think for 
See, I am an introvert. <laughs> I think extroverts have a harder time staying at home because they get more energy by being around other people. I think as an introvert, I don't have the same feeling. I think, and my husband's an introvert too. Um, I think it's okay for us to use Zoom or whatever to see people, mm -hmm. but I admit there is something missing because I can't touch people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all feeling that on some level. Yeah. For that. You know, yeah. it's like yourself. I mean, I haven't been at home for six years, but uh, all of my business is remote and it has been for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. I've gotten very used to being at home. Like, I'm like, okay, it's kind of similar to what I've been doing, you know? <laughs> right. But I, I can exhibit kind of both qualities. I can be very outgoing and also I could be very reserved. Mm -hmm. um, so I certainly miss uh, some of the traveling I was doing and right. things of that nature, yeah. which leads me to our Norway thing because <laughs> I've, I've been waiting for this, okay? I don't know why, but you sound, it may, you made it sound when we were talking like, oh, a lot of things happened in Norway. I'm like, <laughs> oh, like what? <laughs> when did you go, by the way? When did this happen? Uh, 1980. So it's been a while. Okay. That's like a long time. That's like yeah. 40 years ago. <laughs> you realize that, right? I did that math immediately. That's like 40 years ago. I'm just yeah. saying. But okay. You can say that, but I have 30 of my friends on Facebook are from Norway. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, so you were there for like 11 months or something, didn't you say? Uh, 10 months. Yeah. 10 months. So, yeah. okay. Close. So yeah. what were you doing there again? So I went to Norway. I was on a scholarship to go to Norway. <laughs> okay. And I went at first to visit relatives that I hadn't met before. And so I had a uh, Norwegian for a year in college and I was pretty good. I'd gotten A's. I thought, aha, it won't be too bad. Yeah. Understanding them. We got to Norway. I didn't understand a single word. <laughs> was it like too fast? It was like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? No, they were speaking a different dialect. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't even know there was one. That's yeah. interesting. So they understood one phrase I said the whole time. And that was, hi, pastai for Densvingen, which means, hey, look out for the curve, because we were driving in the mountains, right? Hey. <laughs> and that's the one thing they heard and understood. <laughs> You're like, I'm using it as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I got to the school, I was better at understanding what was being said. And actually, school was pretty fun. I would say the best thing about school was the people. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it about them? They, well, first of all, they didn't understand sarcasm. Ah, <laughs> so I, I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to learn to stop saying sarcastic things because they, nobody understood it. What was the, what was their reaction? They were like, what are you talking about? Like, that was it. What? Yeah. Um, but I guess I learned the people there were so different from the people that I'd been around at home. It was like an awakening to me. In what ways? Well, so when a person grows up, in a family, the people around them are probably similar to how their family is. And these people were so completely different from any one I'd ever met. And it got me thinking about life in a different way. And I guess I think I... I think about life differently now again 
because I think about people, their cultures, how they grew up, how different their language is. And I think about the individual and being an individual. Everyone is different. So I think you have a different philosophy as well, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I, well, one thing when we were talking off air about, you know, Norway a little bit, and I told you that my wife and I love visiting Iceland. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was, I had visited a lot of countries growing up in Europe and all over the place. And I remember being so thrown back by Icelandic people Mm -hmm. because, uh, identify with the whole sarcasm thing that was not a thing at all <laughs> yep. and it was also almost like off-putting initially because they were like so reserved it almost felt rude to uh-huh. me initially mm-hmm. and i was like this is like they don't care about anything <laughs> it's just like <laughs> just like eh. and i remember I was sitting in this restaurant called uh sat the first day there and, you know, in America, you're used to tipping people, you know, this whole tipping culture and stuff, you know. Right. And and I was like, where do you sign to do the tip? And everybody in Iceland speaks English, like like perfect English. It's weird. <laughs> and and they're like, oh, Icelanders don't tip. I'm like, you don't? They're like, yeah, no, no, that's not a thing here. And And then there was like no real checking on you during the dinner and stuff. It was like, does anybody work here? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> I don't, did you find, I don't know if that was similar for you, but I felt it was like, that was their culture. It, the culture is very reserved behavior, yeah. not high, not low, just like very middle ground. It's not that they don't care. It's just a very reserved and that's kind of this collective reserved nature, you know? Yeah. Well, it was definitely the culture in Norway too. I think it's weird that, so two of the people I am on Facebook with are Icelandic. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't know they speak spoke English, <laughs> or I don't know if they do speak English. They always put well. They all always have something in Icelandic, which mm. I have to translate. <laughs> Weird. I was there, man. It was like, wow. I was like, these guys speak better English than people in America. <laughs> I was yeah. like, this is crazy. Like how. Yeah. I mean, that was very normal, but I'm sure, you know, I was in a big city like Reykjavik and if they're from a smaller town, maybe they don't, I don't know. But I just found like it's honestly, I was put off initially and I was like, I don't like this, like lack of pleasantries and stuff. And then the more I learned about, I was like, you know, it's just, this is a common thing among Mm -hmm. them. Like, it's just very normal. And then obviously it was weird, like seeing baby strollers outside of uh, shopping stores Mm-hmm. and cold like but that's normal like the somebody the, like a woman goes in and shops and they leave the baby out on the sidewalk and that's very normal in that culture i was like what this is strange <laughs> yeah i didn't see that <laughs> yeah we had a weird experience i was like man there's a whole bunch of different stuff going on out here <laughs> you know yeah. yeah you can't do that here man you know <laughs> no you can't but it's a different, you know, it's just learning about a culture and, and how they kind of connect as a people. You know, mm-hmm. it's a small country, like 300,000 people-ish. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of have a more of a national identity, I felt like. Right. And understanding like their heritage was like a big deal. I, was it like that in Norway in your experience? Yeah, I think so. So the interesting thing that we had was a ski trip during school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that I ski. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we went to the lodge all together and everybody, like everybody was so, <laughs> they say that people in Norway are born in skis. <laughs> mm. I believe them. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So everybody went out skiing except me because I don't ski. I didn't want to ski. And they came back at night and we had a couple people with um, guitars. And so we sang the night away. It was just really 
weird to me. Like, but yet it was really comforting. Hmm. I don't know. Up to that point, what had been your experience in living and, you know, and with people and, and how people interact and culture? What was that like? In Norway? Well, before that, like, why was this so drastic for you, did you think? (laughs) Okay, so I grew up in Seattle and North North Dakota. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so I had probably a different lifestyle for most people as well. Um, So I probably didn't have too many close friends growing up. But they were, I I would say they were very Norwegian in their culture. I'm going to say Norwegian American, because when Mm. I got over there, the Norwegians were very different from the Norwegian Americans here. Mm. I would say it took a while for me to really understand (laughs) my roommate. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, over there, at least forty years ago, they didn't shave their legs or armpits. Or <laughs> <laughs> you're like, "Whoa, what's this all about?" <laughs> so, when you when you looked in my suitcase, guess what? You saw a lot of <laughs> razors. <laughs> yes, these products. I, <laughs> I took my own razors, <laughs> and I used them. Um. And we, you know, my new roommate would look at me and say, "What are you really doing there? <laughs> Why are you are so odd, Marcia?" <laughs> really? Where they're like, "This hair is fine." You're like, yeah, and it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> You're like, no, please don't do this. <laughs> yeah, it's, um Did you teach her about it or was she like open to doing it or she was like, no, 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 she she was all, no, I will not. I'm not interested in that. Wow. Interesting. So one of the things I found interesting about school was we were required to wash our floors every day. The school floor, like in your classroom? Uh, No, our, so it was, um, we were uh, sleeping there. So, oh, I see. Yeah. So we had to wash our dorm room floor every day, which seems weird to me. Um, <laughs> Maybe not right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's a good protocol. Yeah. Um, we used to hang our groceries out the window because it was cold. Yeah. So it's like, oh, that's weird. Okay. Well, I'll hang my groceries out the window. It was just odd. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, so I remember when they taught me how to knit, I remember how I thought a Beatles record or CD, sorry, cassette, there we go, cassette was okay. Well, apparently it wasn't okay because my Roommate finally said, please, can you not play that anymore? Because it is a parody. <laughs> it's oh, like, interesting. okay, maybe I'm not speaking as well as I thought I did. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so the interesting thing to me is I was there for, it was three months. And we went out to, um, on a cabin trip. And they recorded us and I was actually speaking much better than I realized Mm -hmm. because there wasn't anything else to speak there. (laughs) Right. You kind of have to, right? I mean, you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Wow. So they recorded you and like, do you have these recordings still? Oh no, no, I don't. You're like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) Was so what was like the biggest moment there? Like you said, a lot of things happened. Like what do you what did you take away mostly from the time there? I probably liked hiking the best. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, probably because it was so beautiful. I would imagine. So I have a couple of friends, friends who've been there and I feel the same way about Iceland. Like it's just like jaw droppingly beautiful. And actually where I live here in Washington on the border of Canada reminds me a lot of Iceland, kind of the isolation, the, the beauty, the ruggedness of the beaches and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that, that nature gets inside you once you're around it. Yep. Yep. And you want more of it. You're like, I need this in my life, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's not here that way in Virginia. <laughs> You're landlocked, right? Or you said? I yeah. Guess. Yep, I'm landlocked. You're like, well, forget about that, okay? I'm not like that right now. I'm not living like that. <laughs> so what did you take from, so how did that change you as you left Norway? You're back in the U.S., I presume. What were your thoughts? <laughs> the first time I went to the grocery store, I remember smelling toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't perfume it there. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is so weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I guess what I realized first is that we have so much more than we actually need. Mm. Right. We have an abundance of things here, even though sometimes people don't believe that. It's totally true. I get that from being over that area. It's very true. Yeah. It's a simpler life, I feel like, over, especially in Nordic countries. Like, it's simple, very simple. Yeah. And they don't have all the stuff that we collect over our lives they don't have it there it's more minimalist that i noticed when i was over there it was very minimal in nature even the architecture and stuff would to me felt very minimal and how things were and you know homes weren't these gigantic homes either it was like just enough for a family you know like right it wasn't this ostentatiousness of it you know like Let's have all these people living in, let's have a few people living in a massive, massive home, you know? Right. Yeah. And they often had their grandparents living with them. Yeah. You know, it would be really, I mean, having grandma or grandma and grandpa and their kids together so there were three generations often living together in one, mm-hmm. one household. Yeah, that's very different from us. Did you like that aspect or what did you I, feel about that? Yeah, I did like that aspect because it felt homey, you know. So here my, my husband and I live with two cats and two birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that's all we've had for, well, we've been married 32 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. Right. Which is very different from living over there. Yeah. It's this familial generational experience. It's interesting. I think in America, you maybe had some people who be very, who, who are doing that and really enjoy that. And I think the pandemic is kind of caused some of that too mm-hmm. for people. Mm-hmm. And then you have some people who are like, no way, man. <laughs> I'm doing that. <laughs> well, if we were close to family, I think we'd be in the familial aspect. But yeah, I mean, here there's, there's just us. Yeah. I can identify with that. And I was growing up, it was just... um my mother and father and my brother and I, and we were always this four person unit all Mm -hmm. the way through high school because we uh, grew up in a military family. So we were never ever around our extended family because Mm -hmm. of that. So you learn to rely on the people that are in your home primarily. Right. Um, And we've kind of been that as I've been married 16 years and our daughter's nine and it's pretty much just been us the whole time because we've always not lived close to uh, our parents. Yeah. Um, so you kind of learn to rely on that unit as your main 
source. Probably why when you woke up and you saw your husband, it was comforting because he's what you've had for a long time. Yeah. 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 So you lived around the world then? Yeah. In Germany twice, actually. Okay. And, okay. uh, and then just visiting around to like Czech Republic, Prague and all these different places in Europe and then most of the United States. And so I really believe in that on some level, whether you live in a place or not, I'm a huge proponent of visiting and nothing else, mm-hmm. strange places that you think are strange. And then once you get there, kind of assimilate, assimilating a little bit mm-hmm. and learning. Cause like the whole thing, when you said sarcasm, I totally got that when you said that. Yeah. Because Germans are like very similar. Like they don't get small talk. Yeah. They don't care about that. Like they're like, why would you do, why would you ask me how I'm doing today? Like, like what's the point of that? Like, I don't know you. You know, it's funny, you know, but like in America, everybody's like, how's it going today? And everybody's like, fine, you know? (laughs) Right. And that's the only answer you really get here. (laughs) Yeah. He's not like, you know, hey, Marsha, how's it going today? It's terrible. Like most people (laughs) don't say that. They're like, it's okay. Or, oh, it's great. Even if it's not, it's like, oh, it's okay. (laughs) So next time somebody asks me, I'm going to answer, it's terrible and see what happens. (laughs) Just see what they say. And they'll be like, uh, 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 I mean, um, I mean, what? Marshall, how could this be? (laughs) You know, we're not conditioned to like say the opposite. You know, it's... You know, we we meet, we see somebody. Actually, I experience with a lot of people is like they don't even say hi to you. Like they may not even look at you when you walk by them. You know, yeah. Like, you know that's something that I do different now. So, pre-stroke, I probably didn't acknowledge you or acknowledge you as much as you mm. probably deserve. Now I acknowledge everybody. Why do you think that is? I think I'm more open. Is it because of the stroke? That's why? Uh, Yeah, it's absolutely because of the stroke. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you were like, you smile when you see people or you say hello, that type of thing? Absolutely. Do you always get people, do they actually like say hi back to you normally? They normally do, yeah. That happens to me too. Most people, if you at least engage them Mm -hmm. and you say that, they will actually start smiling and say hello. And you start thinking to yourself, why don't I do this more often? And why don't other people do this more often? Right. You know, I think it's, you put ripples out in the world. Mm. So every time you do something that is maybe unexpected now, I think in the past, like when I was a kid, we had people who always said hi to you. Yeah. And maybe it was more open then. I don't know. Um, but now when you put a little ripple out there, I think you don't know how far it goes. And so the more ripples you put out, I think the better it becomes for everyone. Do you feel that you doing, you had mentioned to me, you've been on a ton of podcasts. Is is that the ripple for you is telling your story about having a stroke and how that may impact others? Is that the ripple? I think it is because so almost 800,000 people a year have strokes and very few get out there and tell anybody about their experience. Yeah. And I think if everybody learns a little bit more about the experience of having a stroke, they will be more understanding. So I had such a awesome hospital staff for the most part. And I experienced people that were awesome in the, the general population as well. But I told them I had a stroke. They gave me a little bit of time to express myself. And I think you are like the five people you are around the most. Well, I was around pretty awesome people. 
So my, my experience was pretty good. I think if my experience had been very different, I probably wouldn't have joined Toastmasters. I probably would have stopped going to meetups. So I would have been a very different person than what I actually turned out to be Yeah. this time. It's a lesson, I think, for people in that the, the, the people that you're around, the experiences that you have, nudge you in many different directions, whether it's less of who you want to be, more of who you want to be, whatever that is, or in the middle. And I was just on a podcast before this, uh, a buddy of mine that had me on and we were, and we were talking about this and I said, you got to evaluate who's in your life. You right. really need to evaluate that. Do, are these people that are in your life, are they enhancing your life, moving you towards being a better version of yourself or who you'd like to be or what, or are they just pulling you down? You know, taking the time to actually evaluate that I think is pretty important. Yeah. And you had a good experience. So that vaulted you into doing this. Yeah. Right. So if I'd had a husband who was less appreciative of me, so he always helped me regardless of how simple it was. And when you've had a stroke, you're pretty broken. So, I mean, when we got home from the rehab hospital, <laughs> we had a physical therapist, an occupational therapist come home with me. And it took me a while to go up the one step into the house. <laughs> yeah. And then it took me a really long time to come upstairs. And I had the cat running between my legs. Oh, boy. And they said... You know, you have to be here for six weeks for your home health care. And you have to stay at home or else insurance don't, doesn't pay for it. We advise that you don't use the stairs <laughs> in that six weeks. Yeah. Because um, we're afraid that you're going to fall down. And I remember it was... <laughs> I spent most of those six weeks, I slept on the floor most of the time on an a air mattress. And I got up, I took a shower, and went to bed. I caught up, brushed my teeth, went to bed. I got up, did my exercises, went to bed. That's pretty much all I did for six weeks. Yeah. And my husband... The only thing I remember him asking is what he would like me, what I would like to have from the grocery store or what I would like to have from Target. So he was all consumed in figuring out what I needed. Wow. Sounds like a good man. Yep. <laughs> that's awesome. But that's another example of having goodness in your life. and. Yeah. Who are the people around you? And I just often think we don't, as people, we just kind of slam into other people. We don't really think about it and yeah. go, is this person helping me be better? Am I help? Am I the wrong? Am I the one that's negative here? Am I the one messing up the other person? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and I think it's just critically important to your growth is that you get exposed to different things, learn what you like, what you don't like. And then settle into people that are really genuinely interested in your well-being. Yep. Sounds like you had that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, and you're telling your story, which is really powerful. And that's what I was always wanted from my podcast is for people to tell their stories. And hopefully that that ripple inspires other people. And I don't even know where that goes. And maybe it's not for me to know. It's just going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think it does. It just happens. And if you touch someone and they have a different point of view after you touch them, it's a it's a good feeling. 
It is. I think we need to do more of this. More conversations are really important, whether it's through this mode or video or obviously in person's even better. We're going to understand each other better. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest problems we have is we're communicating through processed information on the internet. Right. And we're just, we're just, we're like throwing darts at each other through very limited text of right. things. And then we right. try to make these weird interpretations of it. Instead of just sitting down with somebody or whatever that means virtually in person when we do all that and saying, I want to understand where you're coming from. Yeah. That's not happening too much. People need more of that. And so I make sure I do this podcast regularly. So I'm feeding myself doing this, yeah. you know, yeah. and hopefully others too. So, but. Marsha, thank you so much for being on. It was nice, you know, from my buddy Greg to send me uh, you so we can have a conversation and, and hopefully be a light to each other, you know. It was wonderful being on here. Thank you so much. And um, I will definitely be following up with you. Once you're in the network, you're in. I will, not, this was not a one-off. You will hear from me beyond this time as well. Uh, okay, well, thank you very much. You got it. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching. And finally, I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called The Donut, or The Dose of News Useful Today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine. And when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally. A daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about and it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else it's your daily reminder that there is good in the world even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes so get the donut stay informed it's a hundred percent free you can unsubscribe anytime Visit the donut.co or text donut to 66866 to sign up today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone. So you want to invest in companies that can do as much for the world as your portfolio. But how do you find them? At Fidelity, we research, we dig, we turn over rocks, and we seek out companies that are successful, not in spite of their commitment to sustainability, but because of it. Want to get clarity on your sustainable investing? Fidelity can help bring it all into focus. Visit fidelity.com sustainable to learn more. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Those big wireless companies try to lure you in with a new phone just to lock you into a contract. Not Simple Mobile. If you have a great smartphone you love, you can get a powerful nationwide 5G network without the contract. Just text the word BYOP to 611611 to see if your phone's compatible. Simple Mobile. Out with the old, in with the simple. Message and data rates may apply. Visit simplemobile.com slash privacy policy for privacy policy and the terms and conditions at simplemobile.com slash terms and conditions. Compatible 5G capable device and SIM required. Actual availability, coverage, and speed may vary. 5G network not available in all areas. 5G upload speeds not yet available.